Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There is something about music that speaks to us. There is a power in music that speaks to us in a way that other forms of communication do not. You think about how music inspires us. You know, when I, I when I when we sing together the song Spirit of God descend upon my heart, the words of that song inspire me so deeply, and especially when we come to the last verse and you get the imagery that he writes about. Teach, us to, teach me to love thee as thine angels love. One holy passion filling all my frame. The baptism of the heaven-descended dove. My heart an altar. And thy love the flame. The imagery of that is so powerful and picturesque and beautiful. And it communicates to us as we sing that song. But it's not just words that speak to us. It's the melodies as well. I think about uh, the Easter Sunday morning after pronouncing the benediction. And Judy begins into Vidor's Toccata. It, it just makes our spirit soar. And I'm not familiar, I don't know that there are any lyrics to that piece of music. But it doesn't need them. It's just... The, the, the melody, the, the tune, the, this, the essence of the music inspires us. I think about that when we sing the contemporary song, uh, Do It Again, that begins with this haunting melody. Even before the words ever start, I can feel it in my spirit, the pain and the ache of our lives and our world. And music can evoke memories for us. You know, whenever I'm listening to the radio and, uh, and I hear uh, Joe Cocker's song, You Are So Beautiful, or, um, or the Beatles, Gotta Get You Into My Life, or uh, Neil Sadaka's Laughter in the Rain, my mind just is transported back to North High School, Evansville, Indiana, Concert Choir. We sang all of those songs in our performances, and I can just feel it and sense it, and all the words come back to me, and all the memories of being a part of that group just envelop me. I was thinking about that this morning when we were singing To God Be the Glory. As we were singing that, I was transported back to the campgrounds in Orleans, Indiana, and the big tabernacle filled with hundreds and hundreds of people, everyone singing that song at the top of their lungs, and, and it just inspires me. And every time we sing, and can it be, I am once again sitting in Estes Chapel in the campus of Asbury Theological Seminary, the very first chapel I attended as a student, and this chapel that has phenomenal acoustics filled with 800 people, almost all of them males, singing that great song of Charles Wesley's. It's still, it makes my, I'm tingling a little bit just talking about it. There's something about music that has, that can speak to us. 
so profoundly. And, and the Psalms, of course, are the, in essence the songbook of Israel. But there is something about Psalm 96 that really taps into this idea of the power of music and particularly of singing. This song was originally sung, as far as we can tell, in, uh, when the ark was brought back to Jerusalem. First Chronicles uh, describes the scene in chapter 16. Uh, earlier on, uh, when Saul was defeated, and the Israelites are defeated, the Philistines captured the ark. And through a series of events and over some time, David finally, as king, brings it back. And now they are bringing it in this grand procession back into Jerusalem. And David and the priests and the Levites are dancing before the Lord. And this is one of the songs that they sing, Psalm 96. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons David wants to sing this particular psalm at that particular moment is because the people and he himself needs to be reminded that despite the fact that he is king of Israel, there is really only one king, and that's Yahweh. And David is proclaiming that in many ways he's just a figurehead because the real king is God. And he wants everyone to remember that as they once again bring the ark back into Jerusalem. At the beginning of this psalm, it says, sing a new song to the Lord. Now, that, that's, the idea of singing a new song is something that you find in a variety of the psalms. You also find it in a couple of places in the book of Revelation. When John is, he has this vision of eternity, there are a couple of times where it says that the people sang a new song to the Lord. Now, to say that we're singing a new song doesn't imply that we abolish all of the old songs and that the only songs that have value are the, are the new songs, the contemporary songs. I think what he's saying is that there is a way in which, in which what we sing and how we practice worship, because I think there's a sense in which singing is sort of representative of all that we do in worship of God, that, to, that we can easily let the songs and our worship become stagnant. And we go through the motions instead of actually engaging ourselves in it. And it's one of the most dangerous things that we can do. Because we have this sense in which, like the, like the, the ancient world that believed, that all you have to do is practice the right rituals, and that's all that their gods want. As long as you do the rituals in the right way, at the right time, in the right place, then you're good. You don't have to have any emotional investment in it. You don't have to have really that much mental investment in it. And you certainly don't have to have a life investment in it. You just do the right things at the right time in the right way, and that's all that matters. And from the very beginning, Yahweh has said to Israel, that's not how my people worship. I'm much more interested in the fact that in you coming in worship with passion than with getting everything exactly right. Now, does liturgy matter? Of course it does. It's important. It inspires us and it helps us. But like everything in our lives, it can become mundane and it can become insignificant to us if we're not investing ourselves in it. And it doesn't matter if our liturgy is what we would call high church or low church. We do the same thing. We just go through the motions. And something in us says, as long as I, I do the right things, then I'm okay. And David is saying to all of us, 
No, it's about engaging ourselves. It's about making worship real and meaningful and passionate. Whether you're singing songs that you've sung for centuries or you're singing songs that for the first time are engaging ourselves in the worship. And what is it that we are singing? What is it we are proclaiming when we worship? It's about who God is. When David and the people come into Jerusalem with the ark, they need to be reminded once again who God is. That God is Lord over all. When you look at verses, you look at down at verses, uh, verse 2, he says, Sing to the Lord, praise His name. Each day proclaim the good news that God saves. He's the one who has saved us and redeemed us and restored us. This is what God does. And then you move on, and he says that uh, his glorious deeds tell them among the nations, the amazing things he does. He's worthy of praise and the feared above all gods. And verse 5 says, the gods of other nations, they're mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and beauty fill his sanctuary. He's saying to us that the God that we worship, Yahweh, is the great God. He created all things. When it talks about the heavens, that's the place where the gods dwell. And and whoever controls the heavens controls the world. And David is saying, God doesn't just control the heavens, God made the heavens. They are His. And there is, who sang earlier, he has no rival, he has no equal, he alone is God. One of the things the Old Testament is trying to help us understand is that despite the fact that we talk about other gods, there is really only one God, and it is Yahweh. All the other things that people worship are are human manifestations of what we think about gods. But there is only one God the creator of all things. And he talks about not only the power of God, but the beauty of God. I find that fascinating. That in this psalm where he's describing all the greatness of God and all the powerful things God has done, he also says, but he is a God of beauty. And it makes me think of creation. It is fascinating to me that at the end of every day, After God creates, he looks at it and says, this is good. Another way, another translation of that word is this is beautiful. You find nothing like that in any of the other creation stories of the ancient Near East. All of the other creation stories are the world and people are created either by accident or because of a battle between the gods, because of punishment of the gods, there is no sense in which, in any of those stories, in which earth and human beings and all of creation is brought into existence by a choice. The only place you find that is in the biblical creation story. Where God says, I want to create because I love. And I want to create things of great beauty. And he does. And God is continually about about beauty and about good and about love. This is what the kingdom is about. And that's why creation celebrates God. As Emily reminded us in the children's story, this fascinating description of creation rejoicing and dancing and singing 
over who God is. Because they realize sometimes what we don't, that God is good. And what fascinates me is that when you get in verse 10, it says that the, the world, the, the, all of creation, they rejoice and they celebrate because He is coming to judge the world. And He's coming to judge the world fairly, evenly, rightly. Now, sometimes we think about the judgment of God and, and it strikes terror into us. And, and there, is a, there is a way in which that's probably appropriate. But actually, the judgment of God is really the justice of God. And the justice of God is about righteousness. It is about God putting everything right, putting things back in order the way He always intended them to be and the way He created them to be. And He takes all of the mess of our world and all of the things that are crooked and broken and He sets them straight and He restores them and He redeems them. And he takes all that is false and makes it right. All the things of this world of, of pain and agony and distress, God is coming to restore and to redeem. This is the kind of God he is. And the creation understands that, I think, in ways that we don't. And they celebrate and they rejoice that God is going to judge all things rightly, perfectly, fairly. I'm convinced that that means that, that when God judges the world, He will take into consideration what we know and what we don't know. To judge fairly, evenly, means that God will take into consideration the experiences and the things of our lives that have traumatized us and have made it very difficult for us to understand Him and to trust Him and to see Him. And God will understand, God understands that. And He judges fairly and evenly. This is the God that we sing about. This is the God that we worship. And every time Israel sings, they remember the great things God has done. And they're inspired about the promises of God for what He's promised to do in the future. But here's the thing about this psalm. It is really a psalm that's not so much about Israel saying, look how great God is among ourselves. It's about Israel proclaiming God to the nations. Publish, tell, proclaim, sing. Those are the repeated words here. Tell the nations who God is. Let the nations know who God is. You know, it's interesting that this is a psalm in which Israel gathers to sing about the world and for the world without the world being present. And I suspect that is because David understands and is communicating what God knows that until we understand who God is and, and, our, and we begin to grasp the rightness and the, and the character and the nature of God in His kingdom, how can we possibly tell anybody else about who God is? But that's the ultimate purpose of worship. The ultimate purpose is that it so changes our lives that we then begin to influence the lives of other people. We become agents of God's grace. We become channels of God's grace. We become image bearers 
of God Himself. This is a psalm about telling the nations. To tell the nations this is who God is, that He is a God of majesty and, and strength and power, and He is a God of love who redeems and restores. And He desires you to experience that. Because even though, the, even though creation is excited and dances and sings because God is coming to judge someday, God's purpose is that we would experience His presence and His life now. And the point of telling the nations is not just about someday they'll experience something in eternity. It's about being set free from all of the stuff that, that enslaves us now. It's about being set free in, in David's context from the idols that people worship that are leading them not to what is good, but to what is evil and destruction and pain. And the same thing is true today. What we want to tell people is that we can be set free. Jesus says that he comes for freedom. Paul writes that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And this freedom is not just for someday, it's the freedom for now. To live in his joy and his peace and his grace and his truth and his love now. To be free. And this is the word that we have been given for ourselves and to be agents to give it to everybody else in the world. And ultimately, that's why we sing. That's why we worship. And maybe that's what David means about a new song. Because you know, one of the greatest temptations of God's people through the ages, and it continues to be, is to think that our relationship with God is ultimately and finally and fully encased in just me and Jesus. If I come and, and I worship God, if, I, if my relationship with God is right, then nothing else really matters. But that's never been God's plan. When God calls Abraham to, to be his to follow him, he says, I'm going to bless you so that through you and your descendants, all the world will be blessed. And one of the most destructive things we can do is to think that our worship is purely, solely, ultimately, finally just about us, individually or even as a church. It is ultimately about God in us becoming God in everybody else. And that means we're going to have to engage with people. I was reading a sermon this week by someone named Jason Perry, and I don't really know anything about him, but I, but I was struck by his sermon. And he talks in there about ways in which we can engage the world. And he says, for one thing, we need to break down the walls of us and them and start building bridges of we. We need to start identifying with people. Instead of judging people and saying, well, you know, they're out of the kingdom. We, 
They're, you know, we, we don't like what they do. We disagree with them completely, and we're going to distance ourselves from them, and we're going to build walls around ourselves. We need to be breaking down walls and building bridges, because if there are no bridges, how do we ever have an opportunity to share with people? One of the, one of the struggles of, of the church, and particularly the evangelical church over the last few hundred years, is that because we were trying, because we believed in holiness, and because we believed that God wanted us to be holy, we felt like the, that to be around people and things that we considered unholy would make us unholy, and so we just built these walls around ourselves. And then we wonder, how come nobody else in the world is interested in Jesus? We have to break down walls and build bridges. It means we have to live with one another. We have to engage our lives with each other. And that will often mean that we listen. And we, and we become involved in people's lives. We go where people, where people are. And he also talks about how we need to die. He's really talking about this sense of, of humility. That our relationships with people who are not yet believers is more about them than it is about us. That we are humble. And we're good listeners. And we, we are selfless. And we sacrifice. Because we're trying to build bridges, trying to create an atmosphere in which people will hear what we have to say, in which people can hear the songs that we sing. And he says, ultimately, we tap into resurrection power. See, what we're doing is in the power of Christ. As Jesus prepares to ascend, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go make disciples. We sometimes think that humility is, is from, a, is from a, a, a point of weakness, but actually it's a point of power. It's just that we take the power we've been given, and instead of using that power to lord it over people, we use that power to love people and to sacrifice for people. I think about Jesus in the upper room in John 13. And John says, Jesus knowing that he had come from the Father and was returning to the Father. Knowing, Jesus knowing that all power was his. Grabbed a towel and a basin of water and got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples. It's not that we don't have power. It's what we do with it. So what are we singing? How are we singing to the world that needs Jesus? Back in the early 1970s, there was a television commercial. Some of you who may be old enough remember this. It, it pictured a, a hillside in Italy, and, and actually a, like the top of a hill. And as the commercial began, one person one young person, teenager, was walking up the hill singing, and you could hear the singing in the background, and all of a sudden, more and more teenagers, you could tell it was a multicultural group, were walking up the hill onto the top of this, this hillside. And they were singing and holding hands. There were probably, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 of them. 
They were all holding hands and singing. And they were singing a song, I'd love to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd love to hold it in my arms and keep it company. And the song went on talking about, you know, peace and hope and love and all these great designs that they had for the world as they sang. And what you discover as the commercial goes on, and they actually included this, these words into the song, that this was a commercial for Coca-Cola. And the, the gist of it was, if you drink Coca-Cola, then you can change the world. Now, you know, I know advertisers promise a lot of things, but that's an awful lot to ask of a, of a of soda pop, right? But that song really caught on, and it was recorded in a number of times by a variety of different groups. I'd love to teach the world to sing. That song came to my mind this week as I was thinking through this psalm. And it struck me that it might not be a bad thing for us to step back and to ask ourselves, do I really want the world to learn to sing the songs of God? Is it a passion of our hearts? Is it a passion that you can see by our action and our attitudes and our motivations? Is it a passion that we are so engaged with God, that we worship Him so fully, that we want everybody else to learn the songs of the kingdom as well? That they too can sing the joyous songs of God and His kingdom like we do. Holy Father, thank you for your love to us, your grace and mercy to us. And I pray that you would help us to be people who sing the great songs of who you are, who worship you with all of our hearts and our lives. And out of that worship, Bear witness to others that they might join in the songs of joy and love and hope and peace. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.